This Week on the Pros and Cons presents Murderish, Southern California, a murder scene like something straight out of a movie. We're the pros and cons to true crime television producers, myself, Bethany Jones, and Adriana Padilla. Hey, guys. In each episode, we bring you insight and inside to the world of true crime. We create the content that you consume from Snap to Unmasking a Killer to whatever else you're watching these days. You can find the pros and cons on most any podcast platform In fact, if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, it actually helps other true crimeys find us. You can also find us on Android apps like Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and we're also over on TuneIn and Spotify. And if you're social, come interact with us at the Pros and Cons podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We have a private uh, Pros and Cons group. And we also have a page and then we have Instagram where we've enjoyed hanging out with you this week. And on Twitter, we're the pros and cons show. And joining us today is our favorite Southern California murderish girl, Jamie. Hey, ladies. I'm so excited to be here with you guys again. Yes. I'm really enjoying this series. I feel like we're going through all these kind of murders in our backyard. I know. And I know we've done a couple of these uh, before, but we have updates on them and it's fun to get, you know, other people's insight, perspective. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I'm, I'm learning about new cases that I didn't know about before. And some of them are, you know, were kind of right in my backyard where I grew up. So it's kind of cool to add that perspective. And I'd never heard of the Arvizu case until you came on. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And yeah, I know on this case, we've got a couple of new updates. We do. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Some pretty powerful updates there. A little, a little tea to share. (laughs) So this might be new for some, but for those who, who know the case, um, we have some details that you might not have heard about yes. before. Yeah, some true crime gossip for you all. So, uh, Jamie, if uh, the listeners want to look for you, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod. You can find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. And I have a fun Facebook group. Uh, if you just go to Facebook and search uh, Murderish Discussion Group, you'll find us. Yeah, I've been posting in there this week. I just, you know what? You're like a full-time poster in there. And I just got to say, thank you so much for keeping my group alive. (laughs) Anytime. Anytime I can uh, take myself away from the work of true crime producing to go in your (laughs) podcast group, I will. And I do want to do a little plug. I was on a show called Come Fly With Me, which is a travel show. Fun. Um, As you know, before I entered this life of crime... 
um, followers who've listened to the show. I started out as a travel producer. So um, and Come I, Fly With Me is a travel show. So I talk about some of my experiences. Do they talk about murder and travel at all? No murder in Mexico and travel. Luckily, okay. Okay. we got out pretty safe. But we talk <laughs> about butterflies and Mexico City and the um, lighter side traveling of through the state of, you know, <laughs> the like jovial side of the joke, not the, the deep, dark side. But um, if there is one. Well, I do give some tips, though, um, okay. that'll help you kind of find alternative places because a lot of the, um, maybe I'm going too much in the weeds, but monarch butterflies are just known to like migrate to Mexico, Ooh, but they lovely. usually go to a very more dangerous state called Michoacan, oh. but I kind of give some tips on other places you can see the monarch butterflies, but you have to listen to the the podcast to find out. Interesting. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Very, you know, some people, there's, it's amazing where you can find alternatives. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a little known fact about Mexico. I had no idea that butterflies, you know, migrated there. That's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Just dripping from the trees. That's awesome. Amazing. Wow. Hmm. With maybe so, I will go to Mexico after all. <laughs> Part of our road trip that yeah. we're still planning, Jamie. Road trip in quotes. <laughs> we well, okay. In in my own defense, which I was really sad that you weren't along for the ride, I did drive by the scene to one of the scenes um, connected to the RV suitcase. I drove by Maple's bar and I did snap a couple photos. You texted them text to me. Text to my home like, girl, Bethany. What am so, I looking at? I know. And I was like, I thought for sure she would know. She's like, wait, what am I looking at? I'm all, it's Mabel's bar. Which of course is where Rob went to try and set up an alibi. But I also need to drive by the apartment where it happened, okay. which is of course a much darker uh you know, part of the, the whole story, but um, I've taken pictures of the apartment before just out of curiosity. I had to visit it after the trial concluded. I needed to go see this place in person that, you know, we had talked about yeah. so much during the trial. So, um, so I have, you know, gone on a little mini road trip, even though these places are in my hometown already. So that yes. really doesn't count, but we will go on a little road trip. We will. A little crime road trip. Yes. We won't murder anybody or each other, but it will be a crime road trip. There we go. So today's case is one that Bethany worked on, and it's piqued interest of many true crime fans. Um, And the anniversary of the case just took place. Also, this was a case that um, Bethany produced for a TV show. Yeah. And um, it takes place in La Jolla, California, which is a beautiful, beautiful beach community. It's a well-to-do neighborhood a few miles north of San Diego. And the case begins in um, 2000, and it even has some international flair. It's the case of the deadly American beauty, the Greg DeVillers case. So uh, let me jump in and give you a little background. In December 1994, It's winter break for college, and 18-year-old college student Kristen Rossum was headed to score some methamphetamines in Mexico, and she's on the pedestrian bridge. Maybe she was there to see the butterflies. Oh, yes. (laughs) She was there for the meth and the butterflies. What a great combo. Um, she's on the pedestrian bridge between Tijuana and San Diego. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with California-Mexico geography, 
you can cross the border by car. Um, and there's also a pedestrian walkway. So you can literally park in San Diego and walk across into Mexico. Of course, through a lot of security. But oh, you yes, can do it. correct. Yeah. yeah true, true. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to Thank make it sound like you just waltz in. And there's, <laughs> you do yeah. cartwheels over the border. <laughs> it's like lots of security and a long, long line, you know. Yeah. yeah. Long line. So Kristen um, bumps into a handsome young Greg DeVillers on the walkway and their connection and chemistry was instant and immediate. Their eyes locked and from that moment they never spent another night apart. Which I think half two out of the three of us here are single, so I'm sure it's gonna happen for us any day now. You, you just, know what? I just love this meet cute. You know, you go to score some meth in Mexico, you meet the love of your life. It's amazing. It's the very definition of love at first sight. And to kind of give you a little bit more of background about Kristen, three years prior, um, Kristen and her family had been the picture-perfect American family. They were kind of this Norman Rockwell painting. Um, Kristen had been raised in Claremont uh, by her parents, Ralph and Constance, and they're both successful academics. And Claremont's about uh, 50 miles east 60 miles east of Los Angeles. Um, so after Pasadena, and it's not as far as Redlands, which is where Deeper we burn it. And, and I would say Claremont is still part of the Inland Empire. It's um, like right on the border. Kind of border. And it is a nice town. It's a nice town. Very, very, very nice. beautiful homes. Yes. Um, Kristen excelled in ballet and she was on a course to success. At 16, she sustained an injury, a stress fracture, which is really painful if uh, you've never had one. And this forced her to quit dance. So this injury completely changed the trajectory of her life. Um, Kristen was bereft from having to quit her passion and quickly turned to alcohol and marijuana to kind of numb the pain physically and emotionally that she was in. It wasn't long after that that Kristen's rebellious nature begins to darken and she takes uh, or starts to take methamphetamines. Kristen's parents are besides themselves and they don't know what to do. Their daughter, who had so much promise, has now turned to drugs. And, you know, we see this time and time again with a lot of, you know, upper middle class families whose kids have all the opportunity in the world and they take the wrong avenue and the parents don't seem to know how to kind of navigate those very challenging waters. And oftentimes you see with, um, at least in my case, in Redlands High School where I went, you know, you had the Southside kids whose, you know, families had money. And of course, it's not, you know, with all of them to paint a broad brush, but, um, you know, many of them, their parents who were very successful, but it's because they worked a lot. And so they were gone and they had these big homes and they could invite their friends back to. And what are you going to do? I mean, yeah, I guess they just mm -hmm. got into a lot of trouble. Yeah. So when Kristen met Greg at this point in her life, it was an unusual match because Kristen was struggling with addiction and Greg really wasn't much of a partier. Kristen was battling her addiction and Greg and Kristen fell in love hard and fast. And it was only a matter of weeks and days really before Kristen and Greg move in together. So Greg and Kristen get pretty serious about each other very quickly. And Greg has fallen so deeply in love uh, with Kristen that he's determined to get her clean and to get her back on track. 
They meet each other's families. And for Kristen's family, Greg is a godsend. He's gotten Kristen back on track and off drugs. However, not everyone is a supporter of this new relationship. It's alleged that Greg's brother, Jerome, has seen Kristen flirt with other guys. In the summer of 1995, Greg and Kristen are enjoying some time with Kristen's family when Greg tells Kristen's dad that he wants to propose to Kristen. While Kristen's parents are fond of Greg, they have some concerns. They think that Greg and Kristen are a bit young and they should finish school before getting married. Greg is apprehensive about her parents' lukewarm reaction to the engagement, but as they say, love is blind and Greg surprises Kristen with a beautiful engagement ring. The young couple decide that they will take their time, finish school before getting married, so somewhat of a compromise. Kristen is really thriving and seems to be worlds away from her troubled teen years. She's digging into her chemistry studies and even scores a coveted internship at the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office. Greg and Kristen both graduate from university. Greg gets a job at a biotech company as a licensing manager, so both are doing well at this point. Mm-hmm. Kristen has graduated and secured a position at the medical examiner's office after completing her two-year internship. Now, there's no reason for the couple to delay their wedding any longer, and they set the date for June 1999. However, Kristen confides in her mother that she's getting nervous and getting cold feet. Kristen's mom is surprised and tells Kristen that they've been talking about getting married for three years. With the wedding plans in full swing, Kristen doesn't have the nerve to pull the plug and the wedding goes off without a hitch. Quick question. Has anyone here ever uh, had a friend cancel a wedding or anything like that? I have. Yeah. It was a pretty um, salacious turn of events and it almost uh, broke up our friendship. Oh. Yeah. It was pretty interesting. You want me to Elaborate a little bit or no? No, okay. we're going for shots and you're going to elaborate at I Mabel's. Will, thank you. Oh, yes, we will go to Mabel's. <laughs> it's part of our research. So Kristen and Greg's wedding, you know, definitely was not a disaster. It went picture perfect. And Kristen was a beautiful bride. And their life just, you know, rocketed from that point. Kristen's career at the medical examiner's office is taking off. Um, she's working long hours And to help their new life get started, Greg and Kristen borrow some money from her parents. With Kristen's career taking off and having to borrow money, Greg becomes a bit insecure. So he's very clingy with Kristen. Mm -hmm. And it's not that he doesn't trust her. It's that he just loves being around her. In September of 2000, Kristen is asked to give a presentation at a conference in Milwaukee, and this is a huge honor for someone so new to the profession to be asked to speak. Kristen's boss, Michael Robertson, is a handsome Australian lab manager at the medical examiner's office, and Michael had helped Kristen prepare for a presentation for the conference. A few weeks after Kristen's presentation, Greg makes a shocking discovery. Kristen has slipped back into her old ways and has relapsed and started taking drugs again. Greg gives Kristen an ultimatum. He tells her that if she does not stop using drugs, he will go to her work and report her. That couldn't have been good for Kristen, who is a rising star at the medical examiner's office. It's likely she would lose her job. Kristen pleads with Greg not to tell her work. She doesn't want to let her boss down, and she loves what she does. Greg loves Kristen and is sure they can work it out. 
Then a couple weeks later, Greg is dealt another blow. He comes home to find Kristen reading a love letter written in a man's handwriting. Greg is devastated. What secrets is his wife keeping from him? They've been married for just over a year, and here she has friends he doesn't know about, and she's using drugs once again. Greg and Kristen get into a heated argument, and they tussle over the letter. Kristen tears up the letter into pieces in tears. Greg calls a man who wrote the letter, none other than Michael Robertson, Kristen's boss, and says, stay the hell away from my wife. As he should. But it's a, a hot Australian, you know, what can I you mean, do? Yeah, I mean, I, you can't blame a girl, I guess. Yeah, it was a pretty emotive, intense moment. Mm. Um, so Kristen and Greg certainly needed a cooling off period, and they don't talk for a few days. Greg is absolutely certain that his wife has been unfaithful to him. He's faced with a painful choice, fix his marriage or to leave the woman he's loved and nurtured for so long. Greg tells Kristen that he wants to work on the marriage and can't go on without her, and he'll do anything to keep her. The couple don't go to counseling, and they just kind of slip back to their normal way of life, and everything just returns to how it was. They text each other during the workday and occasionally meet up for uh, quick lunches. October 26th is Kristen's birthday, and Greg wants to show his devotion to his wife and buys her a an enormous bouquet of red roses. And he also plans an expensive dinner with her parents for the next weekend. The celebratory dinner is going well. Kristen's enjoying spending time with her parents, and it's going really smoothly and really pleasantly until Kristen tells her mother that after a few days, there are only four roses left from this giant bouquet. Greg is hurt by Kristen's comments, and he feels as though... Nothing he ever does is good enough for her. Kristen proceeds to tell her parents that she's actually considering leaving Greg, which has to be kind of a shock. They've been together for so many years. They were engaged for three years. But it sounds like the kind of situation where everybody just kind of said, no, 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 we're, we're, this ball is rolling. You're going to get married kind of, you know, like yeah, she, she, that's she what didn't want to get married in the first place, it sounds like, but it was just kind of like, well, the train's moving. I can't really get off now. And I'm sure mm. I would, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but you know, maybe her parents saw that, but everybody was just kind of like, no, 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 this is what we're doing. You know, yeah. who knows? So that night back at Kristen and Greg's apartment in La Jolla, it's easy to say that their truce is over. Greg flat out accuses Kristen of having an affair with her boss, Michael, and Kristen vehemently denies this. She says that her relationship with Michael is professional and friendly at best. Despite Greg's allegations that his wife has been unfaithful, he's still dedicated and committed to saving the marriage, which is pretty noble. Mm -hmm. November 6, 2000, shortly after 9.15 p.m., Kristen Rossum frantically calls 911, saying that she's come home and her husband is not breathing. She found her husband laying in bed covered in red rose petals, just like the famous scene from American Beauty, Kristen's favorite movie. Kristen tries to practice CPR on Greg, but nothing she does is eliciting a response. Arriving at the hospital, Greg is pronounced dead a few days before his 27th birthday. And at the tender age of 24, Kristen is a widow. 
At the hospital, Kristen calls her parents hysterically, telling them that Greg has died. But Kristen's parents live two hours away from her, whereas Kristen's boss, Michael, lives a mere 15 minutes away. Kristen calls Michael, and he shows up at the hospital to be there and counsel his grieving colleague. With Michael there for support, Kristen signs paperwork on the spot to have Greg's organs used for the hospital. That's interesting. With nothing left to do that evening, Michael takes Kristen back to her apartment where a detective just happens to be waiting for her. It's a sudden death, so it's not uncommon for police to want to ask some questions. And it's also not common for a 27-year-old just to drop dead. Kristen tells the detective that she and Greg had argued for most of the weekend before going to bed on Sunday night. Greg had taken some sleeping medicine to help him sleep and had taken a powerful combination of sedatives as well. When Kristen tried to wake Greg up in the morning, he was groggy and sleepy and not coming around. So Kristen took it upon herself to call his work and let them know he wouldn't be coming in. A concerned wife, she went back to the home at lunch and made Greg some soup. She went back to work, came back early in the evening. It was only when she bent over to kiss Greg that she realized he was not breathing. She's convinced that because of their marital woes and the fact that Greg had scattered red rose petals all around him and was clutching their wedding photo, that it was a signal he knew the relationship was over. The police conclude the investigation and believe it's likely it was a suicide. However, on November 8th, the police get a call from Jerome, Greg's brother. Kristen is pushing for cremation. She'd called the cremation company and put down a deposit with her credit card. Normally, Greg's body would have been handled by the medical examiner's office, but because that's where Kristen worked, the specimens were sent to an outside office. This was so that Kristen wouldn't be made even more distraught by the passing of her husband. Two employees from the medical examiner's office call the police and tell them that they suspect Kristen has been having an affair with Michael Robertson. With these new facts, Greg's suspected suicide is looking a lot more suspicious. Because Kristen had Greg's organs removed the evening he passed at the hospital, there was less material for the autopsy. Nonetheless, the autopsy continued, and what they found was startling. In addition to the oxycodone and clonazepam that Kristen had said that Greg had taken, they found out that Greg had lethal levels of fentanyl in his system. Wow. The medical examiner's office usually doesn't test for fentanyl, so it was only because they used an outside lab that this was found. Now, um, as far as what is fentanyl, for those who don't know, fentanyl is an odorless, tasteless substance that is more powerful than heroin, and it's used in surgery to put people to sleep. You'll hear about it a lot right now with the opioid epidemic. Yes. And I think there's some high-profile deaths that have been connected to fentanyl. Prince and Michael Michael Jackson. Jackson. And also, what about that author um, who recently died? She was writing the book about the Golden State Killer. Her name is escaping me. Oh, McNamara. Yes. They have not... um, fully, you know, I don't know if they're investigating it or what, but I am almost positive a drug similar or fentanyl was found in her system. Cause I remember them saying that it's just that much more powerful than heroin. And so it kind of begs the question, why is a person taking this? This sounds like something only a doctor would administer like in a, in a hospital bed in rare situations, but mm-hmm. I guess not. Well, it is something only a doctor can administer. Ah, uh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So there was a massive quantity found in Greg's system that the lab could only conclude that fentanyl had entered Greg's system in multiple ways. So it was either put in his water or a patch was placed on his skin. So this wasn't accidental. This was something that happened deliberately. And also fentanyl is a controlled substance. And the only place that Greg or Kristen would have access to it is at the medical examiner's office. Mm. So the suspicion around Kristen was dramatic. A drug audit was conducted at the medical examiner's office and four drugs were found to be missing. She had to be shaking in her boots at Mm -hmm. this point. So they found that liquid fentanyl, fentanyl patches, methamphetamines, all of these were missing from from the medical examiner's office. The only person who had access to these drugs would be Kristen and her boss, Michael, Two people who might have wanted him dead. Yeah. So this just can't be a coincidence. With this new information, the police can see that Kristen has a motive to get rid of Greg, to protect her drug use, to keep her illicit affair secret, and also to keep her job. Despite the mounting evidence, there's still not enough to arrest Kristen. They're still building a case. Then the police get a break in Kristen's credit card receipts. Prosecutor Dan Goldstein is assigned to the case, and he's convinced that Kristen is guilty. However, you can't just be convinced that someone's guilty. You need to have definitive proof. And he begins by listening to the 911 call that Kristen placed, and he suspects that Kristen is faking it. Kristen is saying that she's following the dispatcher's CPR instructions, but that would be impossible with the cordless phone tucked under her chin. And Dan was actually a former paramedic, and he knew that that was not physically possible. Even more so from the autopsy, it showed that Greg must have been in a coma for approximately six hours prior to passing away. So Kristen waited until Greg actually stopped breathing before she called emergency services. Dan, while convinced of her guilt, still really only has circumstantial evidence to put her away. He doesn't have a smoking gun. That being said, Kristen Rossum is arrested June 25th, 2001 for the murder of her husband, Greg DeVillers. Investigators suspect that Kristen used her access at work to steal the drugs found in Greg's system. However, they don't know this to be a fact. That being said, Kristen Rossum is arrested June 25th, 2001, for the murder of her husband, Greg DeVillers. Dan Goldstein has investigators combing through every part of Kristen's life, her email, her phone records, and credit card receipts. Two days before jury selection, Dan makes a remarkable breakthrough. One of the investigators on the team finds a credit card receipt for two days before Greg dies. It's for a few cans of soup and a single rose. Mm. This is dynamite for the prosecution. When the investigators present this to Kristen and she learns that they have found this receipt, she literally physically collapses with anxiety. And it's very apparent that her story is now unraveling. Kristen's parents, Ralph and Constance, are in denial and they can't believe that their daughter could have killed their son-in-law. They helped post Kristen's $1.25 million bail. It was one of the highest 
uh, bail amounts, I believe, in San Diego County. Really? At that time, yeah. It was, I mean, a very significant bail amount. Her parents are so certain of her innocence that they even put their house up as collateral so she can make bond. Kristen's mother helps her prepare for trial. And, um, you know, if you Google this, you can see various news footage. And she's seen wearing really demure clothes. She looks like a housewife. She's got pearl necklaces on. And there's this one great moment, and I'll try and pull it up to put on our social media. Um, Kristen tells a news reporter, and she's in these pearls and this sweater. She looks, you know, just looks the part. And she says she looks forward to proving her innocence in court. Kristen goes on to give another TV interview where she says that roses were a way for Greg and she to communicate with one another. But obviously she lied that Greg had bought the roses and scattered them around his body. I mean, she has the receipts that prove that she was the one who did it. Along with those cans of soup. And she fed him one of those cans of soups. Or she says she did. But she admitted to buying the soup. And they have this receipt where, you know, she obviously bought a soup with the rows together. I mean, it's pretty damning. It's pretty damning. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution wastes no time in court, just like you two ladies, and are able to prove Kristen to be a serial liar. November 12th, 2002, Kristen is found guilty of murder by special circumstances, which meant that she was eligible for the death penalty. The verdict is read on what would have been Greg's 29th birthday. One month later, Kristen Rossum is sentenced to LWAP, life without the possibility of parole. And I have some fun facts for you all. I am interested to hear what you have to spill. So, um... Shortly after this, Michael Robertson moved back to Australia, and he's not been back to the U.S. since. And the district attorney's office was so convinced that Michael Robertson had something to do with Greg DeViller's death that there's an arrest warrant still out for him. That is interesting. So what are the laws of extradition in Australia? I I don't extradite him. I don't think they will. And I think, I mean, I think if the district attorney suddenly came upon new evidence that would maybe solidify their belief, then Australia might extradite him, but I don't think they're going to do that. Because I'm pretty sure you can get extradited from Australia to the U.S. Seems like one of those friendly countries, you know, with the U.S., but I don't know If you commit a crime, don't run away to Australia. Just saying. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so it was actually a journalist that dug that little tidbit up um, not long ago, but... Michael is now running a forensic consulting service back in Brisbane, Australia. So um, the a couple other factoids that were interesting is Greg's family filed a lawsuit against both Kristen and San Diego County. The lawsuit against Kristen was for $100 million, and this was to ensure she could never profit from her crime since it was estimated by telling her story she could earn upwards of $60 million. And this is considered to be the largest, if not one of the largest settlements in San Diego history. So what was the basis of them also including um, San Diego uh, County in the lawsuit? Because of the medical examiner's office. And that is where uh, she did get the drugs because when they went back to do an audit... Uh, they found um, 
there were four drugs missing. Mm-hmm. And it was fentanyl, methamphetamines. It was everything that was found either that she used herself the meth or found in Greg's system. Mm. So it was, um, I mean, that was very evident that their lack of supervision or their yeah, la- negligence, negligence. The, yeah. the fact that they didn't have it more controlled. And mm-hmm. what's really interesting about this case is it was because a good Samaritan was like, oh no, don't send her husband to the medical examiner's office because it's going to upset her only because is the of- reason that they were able to find mm-hmm. out exactly that fentanyl was in the system. Now I going back to maybe processes at uh, the medical examiner's office. I'm wondering if there's like, sort of like a dual control process when you're taking out these, you know, heavy drugs. And maybe, maybe they, those two counted, you know, she was his subordinate. I'm talking about the Australian. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe he had the authority along with one other person and that qualified, but maybe not. And maybe that's why the suit was successful and the County of San Diego had to pay Mm -hmm. a certain amount. People think that, that Michael actually helped her coordinate this and, kind of coerced her into doing it. Well, it would be hard to get away with it if your supervisor, you know, was actually paying attention to you. How how would she get the, I mean, you got to believe that there's some sort of control. How would she and her level be able to get those drugs all by herself? Or get them out. Get them out, you know? With the affair, what some of her colleagues were saying is they were certain they were having an affair because they'd take lunch at the same time. Sometimes they come back and they'd have showered from lunch, which obviously it's like, oh yeah, we just hit up 24 hour fitness together and yeah. took a shower in the middle of the day. And very suspect. So, well, and then there was the love letter. Yeah. You so, know. And Michael was married as well. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. But aren't there also uh, talking about the lawsuit, aren't there son of Sam laws that don't allow her to make money off of her case anyway? I think I think so, but this was an exceptional circumstance, and I don't know if Son of Sam is for everybody or just federal or, you know. Okay. And when did that take place, this Son of, Son of Sam laws? Because remember, OJ was going to write a book, and then yeah, hmm, I guess maybe he would have profited it from it, but then the civil right. lawsuit was filed by the victim's family, and that kind of stopped that, but... yeah interesting um but that's a good that's a good question we'll have Mm -hmm. to look into that uh further um and lastly so notably on this case uh greg's family's been pretty tight-lipped they really haven't done much if any media and so has Kristen, and so is her family Mm. you know there's not a really big um you know while it's on a lot of different series like snapped and things like that there isn't a big piece I can direct you to like there's this great piece and great interview that they did in depth um and I was writing to her because I was kind of you know her parents still assert that she's innocent Hmm. and so when I was working on the piece I wrote to her in prison and I just said wouldn't you want your side of the story told and a girl who I'd previously interviewed who's in Chowchilla with her called me a few weeks later and she said, hey, so, um, you know, Kristen's got your letters. And I was like, okay, well, you're not Kristen, kind of trying to understand why she's calling me. And this girl says, so Kristen still has a drug problem in prison and she's doing meth in prison. I don't know how she's getting it. Wow. And 
and she was like, she's not doing well. She was like, so um, she probably won't call you, but that's probably a good thing right wow. now. So, I mean, and of course, this is coming from another inmate. inmate yeah. So it, it may or may not, you know, be true. But then also it's like, holy moly, like how is somebody doing and I know I'm so naive because I've never been to prison. Let's knock on wood here. <laughs> the night is young. The night is young. And I've heard of this before, but it's like, how are you doing meth in prison? But I've heard of that before. Oh, yeah. There's a will, there's a way. With, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it just to me. I like that you're part of the whole, all the hot prison goss, you know? Thanks. Yes. In Chowchilla, they're like, oh my God, Bethany, let me tell you. She's <laughs> probably not going to call you. <laughs> oh my God. Spilling the tea. Spilling, Spilling the, the tea. tea. It was exceptionally good that and day. I wow. wish that was like the only time that this has happened to you, but this happens quite a bit where. It happened this week where this girl at Federal was like, she called me and she, she was like, Nini's been doing K2 and that'll make your I was like this is a recorded call like what are you doing what are you telling us yeah isn't K2 the drug that they synthetic cannabis well that um Aaron Hernandez was doing yeah yeah supposedly before he committed suicide yeah yeah interesting so we should do that we should do that story I I produced that piece yeah one of the most fascinating in my opinion yeah that boston globe just to go on tangents but that boston globe piece was amazing i was riveted by it yeah Yeah. i've been telling everybody you've got to listen to gladiator yeah yeah and then or read up on it or watch the oxygen four-part special that yes and which was very good and i did watch it that's what got me on the whole down the whole rabbit hole of aaron hernandez Hernandez. yeah fascinating stuff all right. Well, thank you for joining us and for letting me spill a little uh, oh, girl, gossip about it. <laughs> and the pleasure is all mine. Um, well, thanks so much for tuning in again to our show. You can get in touch with us in several ways. You can email us at the pros and cons podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at the pros and cons show on Twitter and pros and cons podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And again, we have a private Facebook group where you can interact with other true crime fans, listeners, and the like. Please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or your favorite Android app. Follow us on Spotify and keep up with all our happenings. Hey, and you guys can find Murderish on just about any podcast app, including Apple uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and, and Stitcher and so many more. Um, and I'd love it if you guys followed me on social media. Find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod. Find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. And also find me uh, in my Facebook discussion group. And uh, we have a lot of fun in there. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye-bye. Before we sign off, I just wanted to tell you about a new podcast I'm executive producing called The Intersection of Cancer and Life. It is hosted by my dear friend, Emily Garnett, who was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in November 2017. Emily and her guests discuss the changes, challenges, and unexpected shifts that have occurred while living with cancer. These conversations emphasize the fact that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to rebuilding a life after diagnosis, and lets listeners know that they are not alone. Whether they themselves have been diagnosed with cancer or have a friend or loved one navigating treatment, 
You can listen to the first season now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app by searching for The Intersection of Cancer and Life.